So, let's visualize the field of merit in front of us. And ourselves surrounded by all the sentient beings. Lambs and bears and bugs and everybody. And they all want happiness, even though they're not quite sure what happiness is. And they're not quite sure what the causes of happiness are. And this is why they are turning their minds to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha to teach them so they can figure out what happiness is and how to create the causes for happiness. Let's cultivate our motivation. So those of us in the desire realm are always desiring something. We want something. And the something is usually external to us. It's a position, uh, a possession, maybe some kind of status or reputation or sweet words. Yeah, we want something that's pleasant from outside. And we think that if we can get it, then we are happy. And so most of our lives are spent running around trying to get what we think will make us happy. But the problem is, when we have that, then sometimes we're still dissatisfied. It's because it's not as good as we thought it was going to be. Or even if it is really good, then we're very fearful that it's going to disappear and we'll be miserable. Or we want more and better, more and better, more and better. So even getting what we want is not assured to make us happy. It's good to really think inside, look inside. What does bring us happiness? And is there another kind of happiness that doesn't depend on external people, external things, people giving us what we want or saying nice things about us? Mm 
is there a kind of happiness and joy that can come from inside of us by having certain mental states. So an inner happiness that's not dependent on the continually changing external people and things. So here's where we really start uh, engaging in the Dharma practice and begin to experience how changing our mind, changing the way we think, how we interpret things, and so on, how just changing the thought in the mind, the attitude in the mind, then we can discover a different kind of happiness. And especially a kind of happiness where we're not constantly grabbing at it, fearful that it's going to disappear. Not a kind of happiness that we are possessive of and take for ourselves, but some kind of internal well-being, internal fulfillment that enables us to be happy wherever we are and whoever we're with. So let's start exploring other kinds of happiness and experimenting and see what causes those kinds of happiness. And then also wishing that for other living beings, a kind of happiness that is free from craving and fear and so on. And so here is where we want to follow the path to awakening, not just uh, so we can be happy, but especially to help other living beings see the way to happiness and how to create its causes. So for that reason, we'll study the Dharma tonight.
So we're um, just at the reflection uh, on page 225 that comes after the the whole story of the leper who is seeking happiness and then discovering that cauterizing his own limbs, which made him happy when he was suffering from leprosy, when he heals and when he can see things more accurately, to see that that is actually something painful and undesirable. So in the reflections, the first point is to contemplate the example of a leper seeking happiness and then reflect that uninstructed worldly people live in a similar manner. We may not uh, cauterize our arms and legs, but we do things that uh, bring us problems in an attempt to be happy. Yeah, looking at your life, do you do things that bring you problems, but you're trying to be happy? So that's like the, the leper seeking happiness. Okay, so really think about it and how all societies everywhere, that's the kind of thing that's going on. You know, you think that you will be happy if your country has more territory or if you have a good reputation by taking that territory, or, you know, if you can hang on to power even though uh, it's not yours. And then the second point is to apply this example to yourself and really think about, you know, how we run around and waste so much time trying to be happy and uh, never quite finding what we want. Because mm. if we had found what we wanted, all those other times in the past when we found what we wanted and we were over the moon happy, if that really brought everlasting happiness, we would still be in that same situation. But what happened to that situation that was so wonderful? Okay. And then the third, so this isn't to say that there's no happiness. Yeah, there is happiness to be had, but we have to really think deeply about what it is and what causes it, yeah, and not just go by what society says or what we ourselves have believed for years and decades and lifetimes. And then the third point is generate the determination to be free from cyclic existence and cultivate compassion for all other sentient beings who are similarly stuck in the mud of cyclic existence, wanting them to be free. Okay, and then that leads into the next section. Yeah. So all these reflections that are in the book, they're, they're meant really for 
uh, to help you uh, really think about what His Holiness is saying uh, in terms of and apply it to your own life. Okay, so the next section is called Compassion for Ourselves and Others. So courage and clear-mindedness are necessary to see cyclic existence for what it is, a deceptive cycle of misery. Yeah. Do most of us see uh, samsara as a deceptive cycle of misery right now? No. Uh, we hardly ever think, oh, I'm in samsara. Yeah, we just think, I am. Okay. And we don't recognize that what we see is deceptive. We think everything we see exists the way it appears to our eyes and ears and so forth. Yeah, and we don't see that we're constantly doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, and getting similar results from it, but not knowing anything else to do, how to do anything differently. So the aspiration for liberation from samsara is a reflection of the compassion we have for ourselves. When we recognize that all other sentient beings are in the same predicament, compassion for them will also arise. Compassion gives us inner strength as we practice diligently to cease the causes of samsara. Okay? So... We, you know, we don't, there's a lot of talk now in certain circles about loving yourself and having compassion for yourself. But people often don't really understand what that means. They think, oh, if I love myself, then I'm going to go buy everything I like. I'm not going to deny myself of anything. Yeah, that's how I'm going to show I love myself. Okay. Or I'm going to love myself by having a whole stack of positive aspirations that I tell myself again and again, even though I don't believe them. <laughs> yeah. So what, you know, what does really caring, loving ourselves mean? Well, from a Buddhist viewpoint, yeah, if Love means wanting someone to have happiness in its causes. And compassion means wanting someone to be free of suffering in its causes. Yeah. Then compassion for ourselves would be wanting ourselves to be free of cyclic existence and the afflictions that cause it. And loving ourselves would be wanting ourselves to attain liberation and to be able to create its causes on the bodhisattva path, the collections of merit and wisdom. So that's a new way to think of the meaning of loving ourselves and having compassion for ourselves. I remember once giving a talk and talking about this, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, my whole life I've been taking care of other people and I'm sick of it. And now I want to go out and buy myself presents. 
They really thought that they would be happy doing that. Yeah. I don't think so. Okay, so compassion gives us inner strength as we practice diligently to cease the causes of samsara. You know, each sentence, if you really stop and read it and think about each word in the sentence and how do the words fit together, you get a whole lot of meaning that you don't get when you just read the sentence straight. Yeah. You say, you know, compassion gives us inner strength. What really is compassion? What is inner strength? What does it feel like to have inner strength? Okay. As we practice diligently, what does it mean to practice diligently? Whenever I do things diligently, I'm usually stressed because I want to do it perfectly and I want to do it quickly. And that's how I define diligent. I don't think actually that's a very good definition of diligent, but I don't know what a better one is, so I just do that. And then I work myself all into a bunch of nothing. Yeah? A stressed out puddle of I don't know what. Okay? As we practice diligently to cease the causes of samsara, What are the causes of samsara? Ignorance. Why is ignorance a cause of samsara? How does ignorance create my rebirth again and again and again? Okay? So you you see what I mean? If you take every word like in that sentence and think about it, you really discover something. Okay, so Puchungwa who uh, he was a Kadampa Geshe in Tibet, and he cultivated this kind of uh, compassion by contemplating dukkha, the first truth, its origin, its cessation, and the path to that cessation, according to the perspectives of the three levels of practitioners. So it's very interesting, you know, when we talk about the four truths, We can talk about them in terms of the initial level practitioner who is aiming for a good rebirth, the middle level practitioner who wants to be out of a cyclic existence and attain liberation, and the advanced practitioner who wants to attain full awakening. Okay, so we can talk about and come up with three different sets of the four truths, according from the perspective we're looking at that. So this is what Puchungwa was doing. Okay, so initial level practitioners uh, who focus on avoiding an unfortunate rebirth and attaining a fortunate one. Okay, so that's what they want. Um... Okay, they reflect that under the influence of ignorance and of karma and its effects, they create non-virtuous formative karma. 
When nourished by craving and clinging, the karmic seed matures into renewed existence and the seven resultant links of an unfortunate rebirth ensue. Seeing this process, initial level practitioners will work to abandon the ignorance of karma and its effects, create virtuous karma, and purify previously created non-virtuous. Okay, so from the initial level, yeah, what is uh, true dukkha for that that person? Yeah, an unfortunate rebirth. Okay, what's the cause of that? Ten non virtues, and specifically as mentioned here. Yeah, forming the, the karma. And what lies behind all of that? And which ignorance? Ignorant. Read the verse. What kind of ignorance? Huh? Yeah, it's it's ignorance of karma and its effects. Yeah, so it's it's not the self grasping ignorance, because if you want a good rebirth, if you want a cessation of the dukkha of a bad rebirth, you want a good rebirth, then you what you need to practice is abandoning non-virtue and creating virtue. Okay, you don't have to realize emptiness to do that. Okay, so true cessation then would be, I just told you. Yeah, avoiding a bad rebirth and having a good rebirth. And what would be the true path to that? Hmm? Yeah, abandoning non-virtue and creating virtue. Okay, you getting the, the swing of it? Okay, middle-level practitioners contemplate the 12 links in terms of all samsaric rebirths, so not just the next life. They focus on the process that brings fortunate rebirths. Ignorance giving rise to polluted, virtuous, formative karma, and so on. Yeah. Do you think ignorance can give rise to polluted, virtuous, formative karma? Yeah, what would be an example of that? The fact being generous in the mind of someone, and the one someone who doesn't have who doesn't have the realization of the nature of reality, but hasn't realized emptiness, but is just operating with a good heart, but seeing true existence everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Okay, but okay, they go a step further and understand that staying in cyclic existence, even if they have peaceful rebirths, 
in the form and formless realms is unsatisfactory. They want to eliminate the root of samsara, first link ignorance. Aware of another weak spot in the chain, that between feeling and craving, they practice experiencing pleasant, painful, or neutral feelings, even the feelings of bliss and equanimity in the form and formless realms, without reacting with craving for pleasure to continue or for pain to stop. Generating the aspiration for liberation from all samsara, they practice the three higher trainings of ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom. Okay, so what is dukkha for this person in the middle middle level practitioner? Cyclic Cyclic existence. And what's the cause of it? Self-grasping ignorance and afflictions and the polluted karma. Okay. What is true cessation for them? Hmm? Nirvana. Yeah, nirvana. And the path to that? Three higher trainings. Okay, good. Okay, then the advanced level practitioners. Okay. And Geshe Puchungwa was one of those. They contemplate the 12 links from the perspective of other sentient beings revolving uncontrollably in cyclic existence. With compassion for all the diverse sentient beings, they generate bodhicitta, engage in the bodhisattva's deeds, and cultivate the wisdom-realizing emptiness in order to become a Buddha, one who has full wisdom, compassion, and power to lead others to awakening. Okay, so what is true dukkha for these beings? These bodhisattvas? Yeah, Yeah, the samsara of all living beings. And what's the cause of that? Self-grasping ignorance and the afflictions and the polluted karma that it creates. Okay, what is um, the true cessation for those practitioners? Full awakening, full awakening. Okay, and what's the path? Now, yeah, okay, so the wisdom realizing emptiness, supported by bodhicitta, yeah, and the six perfections, okay, okay, so cultivating compassion by considering that other sentient beings cycle in samsara by means of the 12 links is a powerful way to subdue anger and resentment. Okay? Because when we were angry and resentful, we want somebody to have lots of suffering. But if we think about those same beings being stuck within the, the 12 links and cycling in, circ- uh, in cyclic existence, 
can we really, in good conscience, uh, wish for that horrible situation to, to continue on and on for them? No. Yeah. At some point, we, we see we have to put down our, our anger, our resentment, and have some compassion for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's why considering other sentient beings uh, cycle in samsara by means of 12 links, that's why that is a powerful way to subdue anger and resentment. And psychologically how it works is when we are angry at somebody, we have an image of them, okay? And it's an image we formed of them and we just hold them as this is all they are, all they ever have been, all they ever will be, okay? So hum somebody harmed you before, and when you look at their life, the only thing you can see is that harm. They have nothing else in their life except that they harmed us. We don't think of their good qualities. We don't think of anything else. We just think, they harm me, and that's who they are. Yeah. But when we really meditate on the 12 links, we begin to say, see, no, they aren't some kind of fixed personality, and the whole meaning of their life isn't just the thing that they did to me that was harmful. Yeah, this is a sentient being who wants happiness, not suffering, and who is stuck in the cycle with the with the 12 links and then our whole view of them starts to change instead of seeing them as just who they are this stereotype that we've made of them of who they are this life we begin to see them as some kind of changing malleable sentient being yeah who has a lot of potential When we reflect that others are trapped by their ignorance and subjected to the three types of dukkha, hating them seems ludicrous. Now, why should we bother hating somebody who is already in so much pain and difficulty? You know, it doesn't really make much sense to expend our energy in that direction. How can we possibly wish suffering on people who are already bound in the tortuous cycle of samsara? Yeah, so they're already in suffering. You know, what do we get out of wishing them more? Nothing. Yeah. Except we lose all of our own um, self-respect. Sentient beings are conditioned phenomena. They are not fixed, inherently existent personalities. There is no solid person to feel malice toward and no benefit from wishing someone ill. Rather, with compassion and wisdom, let's do what we can to help them attain true freedom. As verses chanted in Tibetan monasteries after the mid 
dit midday meal say, and you may know these verses. This is what we recite at the Abbey. May all those who offered me food attain happiness of total peace. May all those who offered me drink, who served me, who received me, who honored me, or who made offerings to me, attain happiness that is total peace. Having a heart that wishes that for sentient beings, that kind of heart inside of ourselves feels good, doesn't it? Yeah, we don't feel guilty. We don't feel, you know, revengeful. May all those who scold me, make me unhappy, hit me, attack me with weapons, or do things up to the point of killing me, attain the happiness of awakening. May they fully awaken to the unsurpassed, perfectly accomplished state of Buddhahood. Okay, so even people who scold us, make us unhappy, hit, hit us, attack us with weapons, call us names, interfere with what we're doing. Yeah, still, we can wish those people well. We can wish them to attain Buddhahood. And wouldn't that, in our own heart, feel nicer than saying, you know, may you get hit by a truck or go to hell or something like that? Would, wouldn't it? Okay, so the reflection here. First point, think of someone whom you care about deeply and reflect that they cycle in samsara under the control of afflictions and karma and let compassion arise. What's very interesting to note is, you know, we all we went through the 12 links and we got that, and you know, we have the intellectual framework. Then, if you really think of some human being who you care deeply about, and you think of them being stuck in the 12 links, and you think you know them very well, so you think of illustrations of when they have the first link and the second link and the third link, and you've never thought of these people like that before. You've always thought of them, oh, these are my friends and relatives and they're nice people and that's it. Yeah, we've never thought of them as being under the control of ignorance and stuck in cyclic existence. So it's a whole different way of um, thinking about people and especially the people that we, in this case, that, that, that we care a lot about. Because we think samsara, that's for other people. You know, people we don't know, they're in samsara. But, you know, the people I care about, they aren't in samsara. And we don't think, oh, you know, the people that, that I know, uh, in a hundred years, they're not going to look like they are now. They're not going to be living here. They're going to have an entirely different experience, maybe in a totally different realm. I won't even know who they are. And that all of that comes about because of their own ignorance and formative karma. 
then you go, oh, I never thought about it in that way and looked at that person as, you know, like that. We see them as some real solid person, don't we? We don't think in a hundred years, I mean, in a hundred years, none of us are going to be here. We're all going to be, you know, born in some other kind of body, doing some other kind of thing in samsara. Do we ever think about that? Yeah. That the people who seem so real and solid to us now, in a hundred years, they're going to be totally different rebirth. We probably won't even recognize them. Yeah. Maybe we're both grasshoppers in the in the meadow. Oh, hi, fellow grasshopper. I remember you when you were a human being and we were listening to teachings on Friday night together. What happened to you that you wound up as a grasshopper? And they're going to say, well, what happened to you that you wound up as a grasshopper? Okay. So then think, second point is think of someone whom you do not like or who has harmed you and recognize that this person too cycles in samsara under the control of afflictions and karma and let compassion arise for them too in the same way that compassion arose for the people that you really cared about. Because they're all the same, you know, if you're out in that meadow with uh, a whole bunch of grasshoppers and your grasshopper, one grasshopper might have been your enemy in this life, you know, and the other grasshopper might have been your buddy. So you look at one grasshopper and, you know, you, you don't have clairvoyant powers as a grasshopper to know what somebody else was. But if you do, it's like, oh, well, this grasshopper really helped me when I got stuck and I, I was on the road to wash dishes and I couldn't get there and they helped me out. And that grasshopper didn't show up to wash dishes when they were on the rota. Do you think you're going to remember things like that when you're hopping around the meadow looking for, what do grasshoppers eat? Grass. Yeah plants, stuff like that. Yeah? Are you going to remember all that stuff? You remember it this life? Do you think when you're in a grasshopper, you're going to remember it? Yeah. You keep tally this life. Oh, so-and-so didn't show up on the road on, let's see, Monday and then last Wednesday and uh, three years ago on Tuesday and, uh, yeah, a total of a hundred times, no, 117 times, they didn't show up when they were on the road. Yeah. yeah, and now I'm a grasshopper, and I want my revenge against them for what they did with a human being. How are you going to revenge your grasshopper friends? Yeah. Do you really want to revenge your grasshopper friends? 
when you're a grasshopper and they're a grasshopper? Or do you have better things to think about? Like, where's the grass? (laughs) So if you're not going to think about your grudges when you're a grasshopper, why do you spend so much time thinking about them when you're a human being? Okay. And then point three, recall that if they were free from dukkha, the ways of thinking and behaving would be entirely different than they are now. Okay. So take a minute and imagine Trump being free from dukkha, free from ignorance, anger, and attachment. Yeah. You have to drop your whole idea of who this guy is. Yeah. And what would he be like if he were free from ignorance, anger, and attachment? Or, you know, I just picked him out of the sky. But, you know, pick somebody else that you feel animosity towards. You know, maybe you happen to love Trump, so pick some, pick Pelosi or somebody else. Can you really hold on to that anger when you think of them as a being, you know, in samsara? And what about, you know, if you imagine them being free of ignorance and, and formative actions? They wouldn't be acting like they're acting right now. Okay? So these kind of exercises, are, I think, are very good for stretching our mind, you know? And they, they, I think they help lead us into some kind of awareness of emptiness, you know? Because we're not grasping so strongly at... Uh, how they appear to be this lifetime. We see that they're changing. Okay, then the next section is called The Demarcation of Generating the Determination to be Free. Okay, so for everybody who wants a nice clear line between having the determination to be free and not having it, Okay, we're going to delineate that exact line. Okay. So how do we know our antipathy towards samsara is a genuine determination to be free? So Nkapa says in the three principal aspects of the path, and you may remember this verse too because we recite it all the time, by contemplating in this way, when you do not generate, even for an instant, the wish for the pleasures of cyclic existence, and when you have day and night unceasingly the mind aspiring for liberation, you have generated the determination to be free. That's the demarcation line. Okay. So... 
after a, a certain meditation session where you kind of feel like, yeah, samsara is not so good. It would be good to be a Buddha or good at least to attain, you know, nirvana. Is that renunciation? Uh-uh. Okay. It's a step there, and it's good that we had that feeling. Okay. But we still have several more steps to take to really get that, especially day and night unceasingly. You mean I have to dream about renunciation from samsara? I don't think it means that every night you dream about renunciation, but it means in your dreams, you're not craving for any samsaric things. When generated, this aspiration for liberation brings an enduring shift in perspective that alters how we see and relate to our lives and to the world around us. This determination to be free from samsara involves relinquishing our obsessive attachment for samsaric pleasures and the dukkha it brings and focuses our attention on attaining nirvana, the state beyond sorrow, and making that the aim of our life. Okay, so Buddha bear is renouncing honey as the path to happiness, and loving lamb is renouncing clover as the path to happiness. Yeah. And we're not much different. Just think of what you cling on to. Yeah. I renounce having, you know, a good reputation. I renounce having people praise me all the time. I mean, whatever you're attached to, it's as important to you as honey is to Buddha bear and clover is to loving lamb. Yeah. And clinging on to what we cling on to is just as stupid as clinging us clinging on to honey and clover. Yeah. What would you do if those were the only two objects of attachment you had? It was honey and clover. Yeah. you'd probably have a pretty bad stomach ache. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So here we're giving up. People think that renunciations means you're renouncing happiness. We're not renouncing happiness. We're renouncing dukkha. We're renouncing unsatisfactory conditions. Yeah, we want a state of actual liberation. So don't get confused about what we're renouncing. Okay. Generating the determination to attain liberation from samsara is essential to cultivate compassion. Okay, because we can't have that kind of great compassion wishing others to be free of samsara 
if we don't have that kind of compassion for ourselves first. Yeah. Why? Because we are self-centered beings and we aren't at that stage of the path yet where we can give that up. So we have to want our own freedom. Yeah. First. Yeah. Me want it. It doesn't mean we have to attain it first, but we have to have that aspiration for liberation for ourselves first. And then when we look at the situation of sentient beings, yeah, we can have it for them as well. Yeah. But if we if we're constantly putting ourselves down, we're gonna put others down. If we hate ourselves, we're not gonna like other people either. Yeah. So we have to wish ourselves well, really, to wish others well. After seeing the defects of our own samsara, we shift our focus to others, contemplating that they face the same undesirable situation. Compassion, the wish for someone to be free of dukkha and its causes, arises as a result. Okay, so you see how that works? So bodhisattvas fear rebirth in samsara under the control of afflictions, under the control of afflictions and karma, and they seek to be free of it. Yeah. But Kamala Shila was also telling us that bodhisattvas fear liberation for themselves alone, too. So this sounds like bodhisattvas are kind of confused. They fear samsara under the control of afflictions and karma and want to be free of it, but they also fear their own liberation without having bodhicitta. So what what is it that bodhisattvas are left with? What kind of attitude are they wanting to have? Do they try and get liberated or do they just say, oh, I can't get liberated until everybody else is? Huh? It leaves us wondering, what, what are bodhisattvas doing? When they get close to liberate, uh, close to awakening, do they go, ah, I don't want that. Well, Kamala Sila said they feel, they feel bound, you know, that liberation with, without compassion is like bondage for them. Does that mean that they, they don't attain liberation? But if they don't attain liberation, how are they going to help all sentient beings? But if they do to attain liberation, are they miserable because of it? Oh, I feel so terrible. I attained, li- I attained awakening. And sentient beings are still suffering. I feel terrible. Do you think bodhisattvas 
go through that kind of psychological doubt that we do about what they're doing. Yeah. Oh, I let all sentient beings down. I blew it. You know, I knew I was supposed to get close to awakening, but, but not actually attain awakening. And I blew it and I attained awakening. And, and that just feels like bondage to me. I'm a failure as a bodhisattva. I messed up. Yeah. You, you think they're going to say that to themselves? But we say that kind of thing to ourselves when we do something that's not even bad. Yeah? It's interesting. Because we begin to see that all these very ingrained ways of looking at things that we have, um, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas don't have it all. Their minds don't even go there. Yeah. We ordinary beings feel survivor guilt, right? You know, you're in a difficult situation. Somebody else got hurt and you didn't, and so you feel guilty. Yeah. You think when a bodhisattva attains Buddhahood, they feel guilty because all the other sentient beings are still suffering in samsara? Yeah, you think that's why Bodhisattva always crying is always crying? Yeah. Oh, what kind of Bodhisattva am I? The Buddha worked so hard to get me to awakening, and then I attained it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bodhisattva always guilty. Some of us are kind of, you know, going in that direction. Yeah. In, in samsara, you're always guilty, so, you know, you'll become bodhisattva, always guilty. Yeah. 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 All the other bodhisattvas leave it behind, but we don't. We take it with us. Yeah. I've got to feel guilty even when I'm a Buddha. Can't let myself feel happy. And you know, people really get confused about what Buddhahood means in this way. Because you know, there's one text that says your compassion for sentient beings is strong like a mother without arms who see her child is, you know, drowning in the river that that's the kind of compassion you have, okay? Now, we hear that. Yeah, and we go, that's, that's virtuous? 
you know, feeling like an, I mean, what, what's a mother without arms going to feel watching her, her child float down the river? Okay. If we think an ordinary mother, yeah, huh? Helpless. Yeah. Helpless, panicked, unable to think clearly, angry at whoever threw her child in the river or angry at the water for taking the the child yeah is that what we want to be is that virt- a virtuous bodhisattva you know so the thing is i bring this up because lots of times with an example we think every facet of the example or the analogy is is what we're trying to illustrate. And very often it's only one part of it. Okay. So we really don't want to feel like a helpless mother who's panicked and freaked out and so on. I mean, because that that kind of person can't do anything good. I mean, they can't think straight, you know, and they don't have any arms and what they're just freaked out. And that serves absolutely no purpose. So the, the purpose of that analogy is to, ins- to get us to think how, uh, how strong the mother's wish for the happiness of her child and relief from suffering of her child, how strong that is. Yeah, to feel love and compassion of that kind of strength. It doesn't mean that we feel helpless and out of control and angry and panicked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why does the mother have no arms in the analogy then? Uh, I didn't ask. Okay. Yeah, and they, they didn't volunteer. Whoever did the analogy didn't give the answer. They didn't include that in the analogy. Uh uh, you can file a complaint. Yeah, it might have. I don't know if it was in a sutra or a commentary or. But yeah, you can file a complaint. Mm-hmm. Just as a being that's not a Buddha who wants all sentient beings to help all sentient beings, craves to have um, the ability to help. That mother probably craves to have the ability to help her child, and she lacks the ability mm-hmm. through lacking arms. So mm-hmm. maybe that is why, because that would be something that would come up if you were. She can't grab her her child because she doesn't have arms. Yeah. And as sentient beings, we don't have the power to help all sentient beings. We we not only crave for them to be or desire for them to be liberated. We desire to develop the ability to help them. Yeah. And so she probably craves the desire to help them. Yeah. So she she wants to have arms. Yeah. She's a bit stuck unless she goes to a good hospital and gets prosthetic arms. Um, But, you know, we, it, for us, not being able to help inspires us to practice and to attain Buddhahood where we actually can help more. Yeah. 
Okay, so bodhisattvas fear rebirth in samsara under the control of afflictions and karma and seek to be free of it. But having firm compassion for others and strong resolve to benefit them, they willingly take rebirth in samsara. Sutra statements such as bodhisattvas should not become disenchanted with samsara do not mean that bodhisattvas should indulge in samsaric pleasure. Rather, those kinds of statements urge bodhisattvas to have such strong, joyous effort that they will never give up benefiting sentient beings uh, trapped in samsara. Even if bodhisattvas experience overwhelming difficulties when benefiting others, they persevere without succumbing to fear of dukkha or disenchantment with sentient beings. So they don't give up on sentient beings. Taking on the misery of others, bodhisattvas do not dread physical or mental pain. Knowing that their actions to benefit others enable them to fulfill the collection of merit, which is an essential uh, factor to attain full awakening, bodhisattvas joyfully take many rebirths in samsara. This is the meaning of the passage of in the Sutra of the Tathagata's Inconceivable Secret, where the Buddha said, bodhisattvas, thinking of the maturation of sentient beings, view cyclic existence as beneficial. Hmm. Accordingly, they do not... Oh, I was reading that as an instruction. Let me read it differently. Bodhisattvas, thinking of the maturation of living beings, view cyclic existence as beneficial. Accordingly, they do not view great nirvana as beneficial to the maturation of beings. Okay, so bodhisattvas who are thinking of sentient beings uh, maturing and following the stages of the path and gaining the realizations, yeah. So if they're thinking like that, they view cyclic existence as beneficial because they can appear in cyclic existence and help sentient beings to mature. Okay. Accordingly, they do not view great nirvana as beneficial to the maturation of cyclic of of beings, because if they attain nirvana and stay in that state of personal peace, they do not have the ability to engage with sentient beings. So, if bodhisattvas do not renounce their own samsara and continue to take rebirth under the control of afflictions and karma, their ability to benefit others will be extremely limited. Unable to accomplish their own goal of full awakening, they cannot help others, sentient beings, accomplish their spiritual goals. To fulfill both the purpose of themselves and others, bodhisattvas seek non-abiding nirvana, in which they will be free from samsara as well as their own personal piece of nirvana. So they won't be trapped in either way. Baba Viveka says in his Heart of the Middle Way, finally, somebody is quoting Baba Viveka in a nice way. Usually, this every time you read about this guy, he's getting trashed. 
okay? You know, and he never, he never had a chance to defend himself either. He died, you know, before he could. Right. But that how do we always hear Baba Viveka's name? In the context of the view. Here's one example in the context of method. Yeah. But we hardly ever see it. You know, this guy just continually Yeah, he must be quite a bodhisattva. I've been listening to His Holiness's uh, uh recorded teachings uh-huh. here with iPod. <laughs> no, not iPhone. iPod? iPod, yeah. Okay. And uh, there, uh, His Holiness mentions about uh, what text Atisha used to very frequently teach mm-hmm. and give transmission on when it comes to Mademika view. Mm-hmm. Uh, he himself knew of the Prasangika Madamika, but in Tibet, uh, texts were not ready. Yeah. Uh, by the by, his time it was much much later during Sharava and others, Chagava and maybe Sharava Sharava during that time, Pasaplozawa translated it and checked checked with him. So it's much later. So uh, uh, Atisha was known to be giving. Uh, Madhyamika teachings and transmissions, mainly of Baba Viveka's texts and other yeah. texts. Yeah. So there were uh, times when he was very much a priest also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when Atisha first came to Tibet, the, the Prasangika, well, Chandrakirti hadn't been translated yet. And other texts, yeah. So he had to teach the texts that were there that were translated. And he didn't look at them and say, Oh, horrible. Baba Veka. <laughs> so here's the quote from Baba Veka. Since bodhisattvas see the faults of cyclic existence, they do not remain here. Because they care for others, they do not remain in nirvana. In order to fulfill the needs of others, they resolve to remain in cyclic existence. That explains it very, very clearly. Okay. And inspired by bodhisattva's compassion and courage, may we do the same. Okay. So see the faults of cyclic existence and not remain in it and caring for others, but not remaining in, in our own uh, our own nirvana. But in order to fulfill the needs of others, resolve to remain in cyclic existence. I was very touched uh, yesterday when His Holiness said a couple of times, that if he had remained in Tibet, he would not have been able to benefit as many uh, people as he has been able to in exile. Yeah, I hadn't heard him say it exactly in that way before. Yeah, I was quite touched. 
Okay, so that is chapter 9. And we will start on chapter 10 next week. Mm-hmm. In this last quote, in the last line where it says, they, bodhisattvas, resolve to remain in cyclic existence, is because cyclic existence is the aggregates under the control of afflictions and karma and not a place. So is there another way to say that? I think what it means is that even when there are your bodhisattvas, even when they're eighth grounders and they've eliminated all the afflictive obscurations, then they manifest bodies in samsara. Yeah, they can't say, oh, well, I've eliminated all the afflictions, uh, but now uh, come back because I want to take rebirth in samsara to benefit sentient beings. No, it's not like that. Okay. By that level, they can manifest many different bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. How do we train ourselves so that whatever painful experiences we encounter with people we are able to see them in the, with the eyes of a bodhisattva. You follow the instructions in the text that we've been studying about first how to develop equanimity, then how, you know, the seven uh, cause and effect points to generate bodhicitta or equalizing and exchanging self. So we've gone over these kinds of things in the in the classes many times, and we will continue. Yeah, uh, in the Thursday morning class, we'll be starting on chapter eight soon, and that really goes into depth about uh, equalizing and exchanging self for others. So it's it's a thing of learning the teachings and then thinking about them and applying them to your life and to do it uh, a lot and really forming new mental habits. Yeah. So I can't explain the whole method to do it right now because we're already over time, but I'm trying to tell you where to look to find it. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the Bodhisattva can't think too much about renunciation because without thinking also about the suffering of other beings, they're going to be so um, motivated to get out of samsara that, you know, there's nothing to prevent them from just going one step forward. Mm-hmm. So do they constantly have to look at their minds and say, am I balancing these two motivations? <laughs> um, I think this this is why when we're practicing the path, we work hard on seeing the disadvantages of cyclic existence. And at the same time, we uh, do the the bodhicitta meditations so that we develop both those kinds of attitudes in our mind. Okay? And then I would think that would enable you to balance it better. You still want liberation for yourself and for all sentient beings. Okay, but you you don't fall into wanting liberation just for yourself. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. So let's dedicate. 